Hello, and welcome to Matters of Engagement, a podcast exploring the complex world of patient engagement and partnership. I'm Jennifer Johannesson. And I'm Emily Nicholas Angle. We've had a few episodes now that feature the experiences of engagement professionals, people whose jobs are to organize and conduct engagement activities on behalf of healthcare organizations. Way back in season one, we spoke with Francine Buchanan at SickKids Hospital and Amun Siam at Holland Bloorview. Then in season two, we spoke with Catherine Deeb and Katie Burney of Kids in Pain and Kelly Dilworth at the Center of Excellence for Child and Youth Mental Health. Each of these guests highlighted different aspects of the work, whether it was the complexities of relationship building or the emotional toll of failed experiences or the questions that arise when occupying a role that requires lived experience. So we've covered a lot of ground, but I think we've really only just begun to scratch the surface in terms of how these roles can be experienced. Yeah, and as you mentioned, there are a lot of factors at play. I imagine part of the issue is that it's challenging to even develop clear job descriptions for these sorts of roles. It's hard to capture the spirit of what is essentially relationship building in a list of deliverables. So it's up to the person in the role to just figure it out. There are advantages to this as the person can shape the role to some extent, but it also potentially creates additional responsibilities and burdens that don't get acknowledged or even seen. Yep, and working for large organizations can mean lots of constraints, protocols, regulations, a lot of moving parts. You're typically part of a long chain of events and processes, which means you don't necessarily know how or even if your work is going to be used. There are a lot of aspects you don't have control over. Well, particularly in healthcare, this can lead to experiences of moral distress, which is what our conversation is about today. We tend to think about moral distress more in terms of clinical practice, but it relates to patient engagement as well. Moral distress is a term first introduced in nursing practice in 1984 by Andrew Jamieson. Originally, it was defined as knowing what to do in an ethical situation, but not being allowed to do it. This applies to a wide range of situations and contexts, including end-of-life care, scarce resource allocation, and various types of healthcare decision-making. And in all contexts, there seems to be an overwhelming sense of powerlessness that drives the distress. Well, a timely example is around COVID-19. Healthcare professionals face issues of health system capacity, policies that affect schools and businesses, equitable access to vaccines and testing. People working in these spaces experience not just physical exhaustion, but immense disappointment, frustration, and anger with how decisions are being made. This is a good example of workplace-related moral distress, where there's an additional emotional toll because of factors that aren't really related to the actual job responsibilities. And we've come to accept it. But delivering good health care shouldn't have to include this kind of distress. Right. And because of the interpersonal nature of patient engagement work, it's definitely not a stretch to imagine that moral distress can be an issue. Our guest is Mark Weir. He's the Director of Strategic Planning and Community Engagement at Woodstock Hospital in southwestern Ontario. Back in the fall of 2021, he presented a workshop on moral distress at the IAP2 Canada Conference. IAP2 is an association for professionals in the field of public participation. The workshop was called Weighing on Our Shoulders, 
moral distress and compassion fatigue in engagement professionals. We learned about it on Twitter, actually, and we were keen to find out more. This conversation was really interesting on a number of levels. I mean, first of all, we appreciated the opportunity to hear from someone who is so committed to his work. Mark clearly cares about engagement and believes in its importance. I think even just the fact that Mark is attuned to moral distress, well, it indicates a level of sensitivity and self-awareness that probably makes him well-suited to this work. So it was interesting to get a glimpse of his experience. But we were also interested in this discussion from more of a macro level. In Mark's presentation, he defined moral distress as feeling stuck and wanting to do the right thing, but constrained due to barriers. And he mentioned systemic or institutional barriers as examples. Now, just to be super clear, Mark's not talking about the emotional toll it might take to build relationships and trust with patients. And that's not moral distress. The moral distress Mark is referring to seems to be caused by workplace and environmental factors which are beyond his control. And to us, this is an opportunity to take a closer look at the context of engagement in general. What are some possible causes of this distress, and what does it say about the overall project of patient engagement? Emily and I tried to sort through these questions later in the episode. Okay, well, let's hold that thought for now and get to our discussion with Mark. Our conversation started with getting a better understanding of how patient engagement relates to or differs from community engagement and how moral distress plays a role. Here's Mark. I find when you engage the people who either have already been served or are kind of in the process of being served, patients, families, caregivers, it's a different conversation, slightly different. When you go out into the broader community, the, the more general public, you know, a lot of people reflect on different experiences that they had, but that they also look to your organization as part of their community. They want to know that those services are going to be available when they need it, but they may not really appreciate or understand maybe some of the more the inner workings. The kinds of questions that you might ask definitely differ. We will open our doors and invite people in, but when you do community engagement, like you're going to their meetings, you're going to their settings, and you get a much broader perspective on what your services um, mean to the community. As Director of Strategic Planning and Community Engagement, Mark's role encompasses engagement with people and groups that certainly includes patients, but may not be limited to patients. This gives Mark a broader perspective and perhaps a heightened sense of responsibility. It helps you appreciate that, yeah, you do have responsibility or you're stretching your responsibility beyond just people once they enter your walls. Like you're needing to think more about how people access care. How do people even get to the hospital? Um, what about when people are discharged? Do they have a plan to get home? You do pick up on definitely some tensions that can weigh on you because you realize some of the systemic barriers more so between institutions and across the, the system. Focusing on the public can sometimes need even a bit more clarification in terms of, you know, sometimes people will think more of the public in terms of their role as a taxpayer and the kinds of, you know, questions that they have about where their taxes are going, how they're being utilized, resource allocation, those sorts of broader public services kind of questions. 
I think when we talk about public, we're not always crystal clear on like, what are we actually really trying to understand from their point of view? And to your point, it may have very different stakes. Throughout his career as an engagement professional, Mark has been primarily working in the healthcare sector. However, many of his peers work outside of healthcare, and he finds that opportunities like conferences for engagement professionals provide a chance for him to network with colleagues and learn from their experiences in other sectors. Right, like the IAP2 workshop we mentioned earlier. That's what he's referring to here. Yeah, I've had a real interest in speaking at those groups because it's quite therapeutic in a way, like they're, they're conference presentations, certainly, but, you know, it's a chance for that peer-to-peer support and knowledge exchange. And when I decided to put together a, an abstract that talked about some of the issues that I've wrestled with through my career is that I think as a practice, we're really good at sharing the work that we do, but I don't think we're always as good about talking about the impact that that has on us as practitioners and our ability to sustain our motivation and enthusiasm and, and you know, battle some of those demons around dis, you know, disillusionment. You know, there's an opportunity at those conferences to go beyond just the work that we do, but to talk more about how are we taking care of ourselves? How, how are we continuing to advocate for strong engagement work that will allow for those sustainable decisions because we don't want situations to have to escalate to the point where people are lobbying for change or there's having to be so much organized advocacy in the sense where it's very diametrical. So this goes beyond what we commonly hear about when we talk about challenges in engagement. Often it's about trying to build capacity in the patient population or trying to navigate organizational processes and systems to ensure support for engagement programs. Or maybe we talk about managing interpersonal and group dynamics. Right. So these conversations are usually about tactics or implementation. There's something bigger here. Mark is acknowledging that there's more at stake than just gathering patients together and asking for good ideas. He recognizes that patients are seeking outlets to be heard in a way that's satisfactory to them. Otherwise, well, that's where Mark talked about wanting to hopefully prevent escalation of issues to where there might be conflict. So the moral distress is heightened by also feeling responsible for keeping patients happy. It's a lot to bear. So Mark is looking to colleagues to see if there's a way to support each other through, as he says, disillusionment. Mark continued with describing some of the ongoing work of navigating patients' needs and finding ways to incorporate or learn from their experiences. And when I say like, you know, diametrical position, it's not to say that they're needing to really be a a difficult person or challenge everything and whatnot. It's just that maybe they're going to find more satisfaction by setting up a, you know, bilateral meeting with somebody to sort of put this, this is my position and this is, um, the kind of change that I would think needs to happen. But there's, there's other routes for some of that too within healthcare. I find sometimes a patient relations route, or maybe that it's helping direct them to say a different level of the system that is the actual work change perhaps is where it needs to happen rather than where it's lived out. Anyway, it's a, it's a very important central tension of this work and it's not something that uh, is formulaic. It really does need to be explored and addressed with with each person that you're looking to engage with. I think at the end of the day, everyone is trying to affect some kind of change. You're really just trying to find um, the right match for a lot of those 
a lot of those avenues. And sometimes people may For Mark, the engagement, engagement role is more than recruiting patients into committees. He's actually in a kind of facilitation or brokering role where he's welcoming a patient who might have something to contribute, whether it's feedback or a suggestion, maybe they want to volunteer, or they might be really upset about something and they're looking for the right place to bring their complaint. Mark is kind of on the front lines of customer service, which comes with stresses or tensions that might not be present in other managerial or administrative roles. You can feel push and pull from, from both different sides as well. And in creating that vulnerability for speaking with patients and families, like you, they're, they're sharing with you um, incredible personal journeys of uh, hope and uh, being let down and, you know, feeling like they've got a, you know, second chance at life, but then other people who have had great tragedy. And in a way, you're kind of trying to help them not make sense of what they've been through, but try to find a way that it's not all for naught. That starts to weigh on you a bit because in order to create that vulnerable space, you as a practitioner have to become vulnerable yourself. I mean, I've shared lots of, you know, personal things about myself to folks, you know, including my own personal health journeys that have been frankly chaotic and confusing and frightening and, and disempowering at times. Also being really, you know, great at times too, but yeah, it's certainly, you internalize a lot of that. Folks will, will maybe say like, oh, you know, do you just kind of have to keep it separated and all that sort of stuff? And it's just not, it's not possible. And it's not, frankly, I think a good way to do engagement work, especially with patients and families, because when you create that vulnerability, like you bring some of that story of theirs in with you as you try to find you know, the right places within the health system about where is that idea best placed to, to affect some change. Mark has training in genetics and health ethics and has been working as an engagement professional for many years. But like many who do this work, he also shared with us that he's been an engaged patient himself. So he has a sense of what it's like on the other side. He brings a natural empathy to the role, which is undoubtedly helpful. But I wonder if it also ups the stakes of it, increases a sense of distress when things don't go well. Mark also mentioned vulnerability a few times. This is language more commonly heard in sort of more therapeutic sessions. I suppose that's how many people experience engagement in healthcare. People share details, thoughts, and feelings about being a patient, and those are usually very private. Trust plays a big part of whether people want to share or not. Right, and it's not just the vulnerability of the patient that Mark is talking about. He's talking about sharing his own experiences as well. And that's fairly common in engagement work. People are often hired, at least in part, because of their lived experience. Yeah, and for a lot of reasons, that can be really valuable. But we know from other conversations that there can be mixed feelings about how much to share once you're hired into a role. I know I've experienced them. Some people will want to share and relate and others feel it's just not appropriate. But since shared vulnerability helps with building trust, well, as Mark has experienced, it might actually feel like a job requirement, whether it's stated or not, which for some of us <laughs> can create some inner conflict. I imagine that can be tough to navigate. 
And for the patient, trust is not just about feeling safe in the moment, although that's a big part. It's also about knowing that the person you're talking to is going to take what you've shared and do something good or productive with it. All of this combined, well, it's a lot. You know, you're dealing with all these things that are moving parts and they're, there's different time frames for different policies and initiatives. And, you know, another analogy I might use is like, you kind of feel like an operator where you're taking the call from the patient and you're understanding what is at stake here, but then you're also trying to find the right receptacle for it. But all those receptacles are moving and um, you know, the person on the line is really kind of counting on you to, to help them, to help others by taking that insight and applying it um, to the right place. So it does create moral distress because you do feel, you feel like you can let people down very easily. You just feel terrible because, you know, you want to try to move things to a better place. You want them to help move things to a better place. I thought this was an effective visual that Mark described trying to make connections like a receptionist and not being able to put people through to the right person. And actually, if we run even further with that analogy, it's probably more like being a 911 operator, but you can't access emergency services. You can take the call and talk people through something that's really difficult, but if you don't actually have a solution to offer, well, it can be highly distressing. Yeah, and Mark's not saying it's 100% of cases where the connection gets dropped but it's enough that it weighs heavily on people in this role. I mean, he's not using the term moral distress lightly. No, that's right. And it's not just barriers within the organization. He alludes here to much wider systemic and societal issues, which might include racism, discrimination, and other forms of systemic mistreatment that result in patient distrust. You know, every once in a while it comes to your awareness, but not all the time of, again, these systemic barriers that maybe have nothing to do with you or your institution or the way you're engaging. But say you're trying to engage audiences that, yeah, have just, there's a complete lack of trust because of, you know, generations of neglect and uh, lack of service or, you know, service has caused harm. You know, organizations are or wanting to take these next steps to, to engage with those audiences. But I've found myself at times, you know, in a situation where it's like, now I am the face of not just the organization or the system, but it's like the whole historical setup of how healthcare has been organized. And it's all of a sudden now, like me as a person trying to um, go and have these conversations where, you know, that it's not going to be a simple thing. And in, the, in many ways, you're just trying to start with building a relationship rather than try to get to some deliverable that places great strain on you because you want to do a good job and you're trying to be as thoughtful and down to earth and authentic as possible. But you realize sometimes it is so much bigger than you. You can feel great strain on yourself to all of a sudden now be the person who's putting that responsibility onto your shoulders because you know, there's still so much learning and, um, relationship building that needs to happen at so many levels. I imagine that what Mark's describing here doesn't show up in job descriptions. He's talking about not only shouldering the weight of current and historical grievances, but also having to be the interface or the buffer between the patient or community and the organization. 
Now that's a tall order, to have someone on the front lines absorb all of that pressure. You're no longer just a, an engagement practitioner. You're also, I don't know, you're also like a coach. You're, you're trying to work with many subject matter experts who have many different disciplines uh, many different educations, many different worldviews, frankly, about what is knowledge, what is, what is valuable, <laughs> whose values are we, you know, trying to serve. And, you know, healthcare, so many organizations in the healthcare are evidence-based. So then you get into, you know, lots of different discussions about, well, what is this, is it, like, what is this engagement work? Is it evidence? Is it information? Is it more advocacy, that kind of thing. You know, you don't want to, you know, make all these decisions based on assumptions. It's better just to ask the people who are really impacted. But there's still like this growing pain of like knowing what to do with that information. And how does it stand up alongside clinical evidence and economic evidence? And, you know, should it inform decisions or should it help to make decisions? And Okay, so I think Mark just asked all of the questions about engagement we've been wondering throughout this whole podcast series. It's a really challenging role to be in, especially if you're sitting with all these unknowns. You know, there's so many growing pains along the way where, again, I think it's just sometimes a matter of, as I mentioned, those, those, those kind of moving targets that you keep trying to hit. Um, sometimes it just doesn't line up and it's just, it's painful because you realize that the train has left the station on something and then it's like, you've got this great input that can't really affect anything. And then frankly, you know, the organization may look bad because it's like, oh, they didn't listen, but it's actually just that there's so many trains moving in and out of the station that, that it just, um, it just doesn't look good that, you know, we've taken the time to do this really thoughtful work and it's like, it never really went anywhere. And it's like, your constant, then your role as an engagement practitioner is then to try to work within the organization to say, okay, next time this train is even being assembled, can we start to talk to people rather than wait until it's, you know, getting full steam ahead. So there's a lot of that interplay that you're doing. And again, with these massive organizations, it's just, it might just be you or a small group of you who are trying to keep on top of this massive machine of all these different moving parts you wear that responsibility you feel like you've been that bridge that somehow collapsed and then it's just you know you're, you've kind of got disappointment all around and and uh you know part of it too i would say is that i'm trying to also you know work with colleagues who they who they themselves may not always know how everything works like we're all kind of working together to try to um, find the right route for some of this input to actually filter up into how decisions get made. Not always knowing what are all of the other factors that decision makers are weighing up, but it certainly um, weighs on you who are just trying to be this, this bridge, this conduit, uh, you know, to all the people who are impacted and being served uh, by the health system. Mark is trying to manage a lot of things at once, managing patient expectations while building capacity within the organization, all while trying to navigate through processes and decisions that aren't transparent to him. In addition to the moral distress, there's also the risk of a kind of burnout or compassion fatigue. In this kind of job, 
Like with many other frontline roles where you're interacting with patients on a regular basis, you just can't have a bad day without potentially impacting others. Working with you know people and their stories, and um, you can almost say the distress there is a bit more compassion fatigue in a sense, and and the you know real concern that you you know you're again you're trying to help somebody make sense of sometimes a senseless situation or circ- set of circumstances, and uh, the last thing you're trying to do is re-traumatize somebody that sort of thing. So that I think can definitely be addressed a little bit more through again some more proactive. I have gone to a couple of workshops here and there around empathy and you know sort of the self-care and and asking appropriate questions and I've when it comes more to the systemic tensions and and that sort of thing I I I do think that that is something that is um, perhaps shared a little bit more across sectors beyond healthcare. Mark raised an interesting point here about the engagement profession in general it's a much wider field than just healthcare, of course, and many of his peers are working in sectors that don't include this sense of partnership. In many cases, engagement means stakeholder consultation, which may take the form of things like public surveys or town halls, information sessions. Well, this is quite a bit different than patient engagement, where there's an expectation of relationship building, collaboration, and co-design. So even though there's a wider community of practice in terms of public engagement, the healthcare context presents some issues that are unique to the space. You know, I have colleagues that work in more like environment and uh, energy. And, you know, when I talk to them about all these compassion fatigue things, they're, they're, they're talking, they're like, what are you, ta- what are you talking about? But they're, you know, when it comes to systemic challenges, we're like right on the same page and, you know, trying to talk about understanding a system talking about, you know, you have, to, you have to understand all sorts of frameworks and legislative and regulatory components and that side of the system. I guess there's no real roadmap for like a clear path of like, how do you, how do you address some of that? And it, especially, you know, how do we address, again, some of those systemic barriers that patients and families encounter? Societally, we're, we're facing now a lot of these question marks about how do we address systemic challenges, systemic barriers. And I don't think it's just going to be engagement work that moves us forward. I think we're an important role of it. I think we have to help not just, not not always build the trust, but with, say when an organization builds trust, that trust is then bestowed upon us to go and have conversations that we need to be very cautious and careful around trying to not erode that trust further and needing to be very good listeners. I think this is actually where institutional patient engagement practice has perhaps improved the most. Far from perfect, of course, but there is a notable shift in terms of creating a welcoming atmosphere and trying to provide some kind of platform where patients can feel heard, whether that's on committees or advisory panels or perhaps one-off projects. Again, not across the board, but some engaged patients do really feel engagement activities give them a space to feel heard, even if they still harbor suspicions that it might not lead to actual change. Right. Well, obviously just listening isn't enough. Trust can be hard to earn or can be easily broken if there's no follow through. It's just not sufficient. I think that's where folks would maybe feel like, okay, you're listening as the engagement professional, but I'm not really seeing any change happen. 
I would say again, like that's where you feel that responsibility as the engagement professional, because you're furiously trying to find those different receptacles for your, you know, as the operator, you're, you're, all these different receptacles are moving around and can you, you have an appreciation for the complexity of different organizations and where this one idea may actually really be valuable. And so, and you're trying to create those channels where that listening can happen. And uh, it's not like we all went to school to become engagement practitioners. I think there's more formal education coming and it's evolving, but I don't know. I'm not sure there will ever be just like a, a, a single course on, okay, now you take this, now you're prepared for everything. A lot of this is experienced by living through it. And um, I think just needing to get people to pause and not just keep forging ahead. And then later on feeling like completely drained and, or have breakdowns to say, I just can't, I can't keep doing this the way I'm doing it. You know, I guess another kind of part of the role certainly is being a, an advocate for good and thoughtful, well-designed engagement. I do have conversations with other colleagues who say they want to do X, Y, and Z. You know, I'll chat with them and say, okay, help me understand, like, what are the timeframes you're working with? Where is your project going? You know, how, how are we going to explain this to the people we're engaging so we can, you know, make sure that they're clear. It's really important to help, you know, uh, make sure that, that you are not setting something up for failure and you might end up taking, say, five steps back by doing X, Y, and Z. This is the capacity building piece of the job. As Mark mentioned, there's just not a lot of training for these kinds of roles. And even though organizations are carving out departments and programs, they're still quite inexperienced. Mark is trying to shape how people think about engagement so that there's actually somewhere to integrate the input he's tasked with obtaining. Yeah, and I imagine it's quite frustrating. Well, we asked Mark if there's room for refusal. When you see something being done poorly and you know the risk of causing harm is high, can you just say no or push back? There can be a bit of a reluctance to say, you know, like push back or to your point, like you, you don't want to be the obstacle for progress and what people want to do. But there's incredible um, value in, in um, again, managing those expectations internally to say what the risks are to um, what could potentially arise and what your past experiences have been when things maybe have been rushed or inauthentic or uh, not clear, those sorts of things. But I do think it, this kind of, you know, bringing out these ideas of moral distress and getting some conversation about it, et cetera, is ultimately I think trying to empower practitioners to, to have that confidence. So then we have the, when they have those, those conversations, they don't just feel like it's them against the world, but that there's actually, you know, a whole, association or practice that that feels like, you know, this is something that we uh, need to advocate for and being, you know. Right. So it's not just about building capacity within the organization. Here, Mark is talking about shoring up the confidence and skills of engagement practitioners so they can advocate for better engagement within their organization with the support of a wider community, which is where the conference workshop comes in. There's no straight line in this practice. There are good days. There are or bad days, they're challenging experiences. But as I mentioned, exhilarating ones too, where it feels like you're opening the window and there's a breath of fresh air. And it's just like an aha moment where things are clicking and it just, 
it's amazing. But if you don't have some of the awareness, I would say of some of the, uh, the moral distress um, that comes along with this work, it's, it can, it can kind of creep into your sense of being and it, and it's happened to me. I, that's why I want to create a space where that conversation can happen. Part of the culture change within organizations is simply getting invited to those meetings. And again, I've been in three inaugural roles and sometimes folks just don't know to invite you to certain things. I don't think it's intentional to leave folks like us out of it, but sometimes it's just not top of mind. Trying to name and deal with some of the work through some of the moral distress and challenges through this work is then to empower practitioners to to have the confidence to speak up at those meetings. Well, I can see why it can be a heavy burden sometimes. Mark is a fairly seasoned engagement professional at this point, yet each of his healthcare-related engagement roles have been inaugural ones, meaning he was the first person to occupy that role in the organization. And that's a lot of culture change he's been trying to impact. But Mark remains optimistic. For him, the good outweighs the burdens. I am very much on the it is worth it side of things, especially because this is a field of work that really is still growing into itself for all the work that you're doing within an organization. It also feels like part of the motivations for doing the work is that you are growing a field of work. You're trying to take it to the next level and you're willing to go through some of those growing pains you know, beyond just myself and being in these inaugural roles, I do think that organizations that create engagement roles, I think, yeah, do need to support their staff. I think that they want to, maybe they just don't really know how to completely yet, maybe in part, because again, we're so focused on these best practices that it's sort of seen as like, there's, there's a lot of just the great things out there. And it's, there are great things. I'm not trying to detract from any of that. It's just to say, uh, we need to kind of appreciate the toll that, you know, the the vulnerable space that some of those people get into. I just appreciate that I've been able to have a great experience through this career, but it hasn't been without things weighing on me. I think I'm not alone in that. And again, I want it to, to be done thoughtfully. You know, we often hear about the word meaningful engagement, like for me, the I think meaningful can mean a lot of different things for a lot of people, but for me, it just has to be authentic. Are you fully present when you're engaging? Like, are you bringing some of yourself? Are you creating that vulnerable space? I think we need to do that in order to make this successful, this experiment, you know, this engagement field of practice. But there is a bit of a trade-off with that. I guess there's a bit of a, a side effect of that. And it's not like it's not worth it. Hey, Emily. Hi, Jen. So I don't actually have a lot of further comments on the specifics of our conversation with Mark. Mostly I'm just appreciating how thoughtful he is about the work and and how much he's wanting to help improve people's experience of the role. Yeah, I agree. We had a follow-up call with Mark after the workshop. It sounds like this really resonates with people and that there's a lot of interest in the peer support he's talking about. I think this concept of moral distress is only just starting to take hold. So it makes sense that Mark is first trying to gauge if this is a shared reality. 
I'll be interested to see what might come next as Mark and many others continue to build a community of practice for engagement practitioners. So for our part of this discussion, let's think a bit wider about the organizational context and this idea of moral distress. I think what makes the patient engagement role somewhat unique amongst other administrative or managerial roles is that it's a bit nebulous. Often the people in these roles are given some leeway to shape the responsibilities and activities, and often they're by themselves, like Mark, in a department of one. So they're kind of alone in their mission and without a wider frame of reference. Right. There are always going to be workplace frustrations and challenges, but this feels different. It's like patient engagement is a little silo that operates on its own, and as long as there's activity and some kind of feedback loop, well, from the organization's perspective, it's maybe working as expected. But for the people on the inside, especially those who care and who want to make a difference, it can maybe feel like they've just been left on their own to sort it all out. And not just on a practical level, on an emotional one too. Yeah. I think we're in a particular cultural moment right now where we tend to look inward to see how we can take ownership of our experiences or whatever. And organizations encourage this through their wellness programs or mental health support or talking about work-life balance. But all of this puts the burden on the employee, right? The very definition of moral distress is that you want to do the right thing, but you can't because you're not allowed or enabled to do so. So for engagement professionals, you're hired into a job, have lots of compassion and energy and want to do right by patients and find that you're kind of walled off from the rest of the organization. But because you're often the only one and the job is so loosely defined, well, it can feel like your own fault if things don't go well or if you feel that you've been ineffective. Yeah, and then it becomes a kind of internal advocacy campaign to inform and teach the rest of the organization about why they should not just listen to patients, but actually change processes and decision-making to incorporate patients. It's a hard sell, and it keeps people very busy, I think. Right, which on some level is the job. It's hard to measure making a difference, but you can measure activity levels. So maybe part of the role is to just be busy doing engagement. In other episodes, we've touched on this idea that patient engagement serves a purpose for the organization unrelated to actually including patient perspectives in decision-making. It helps organizations look more engaged. And whether they are or not, well, it might not matter so much. If they're always trying and it's always improving and they're always saying, well, it's not perfect, but we have to start somewhere, well, there's no finish line. There are a lot of other things being accomplished. The patient engagement role kind of acts as a buffer. Mark talked about sometimes finding himself as the face of decades of systemic mistreatment, which he's then having to navigate as one of the primary interfaces to the hospital. So the role itself is put out front, and part of its responsibility is to absorb and maybe diffuse patient discontent. Yeah, I think conscientious people like Mark would certainly find this unsatisfying and even dismaying. But, you know, in other episodes, we've also reflected on the notion that the point of engagement seems to be engagement. So an example would be convene a group, do an activity, 
talk through experiences and develop some insights, and then everybody goes home. We've seen time and again that that's where engagement begins and ends, because the purpose is served once you've held the meeting, at least according to the organization. There is more pressure now to show impact, but often it's fairly inconsequential. Or the value in saying you did something is higher than the value of the thing itself. So the moral distress is caused by thinking you can make a difference when in fact the environment or conditions don't allow for that. There's no getting around the fact that the engagement role is part of the organizational hierarchy. And ultimately it serves the goals of the organization. So part of the job is to represent the organization and help explain its shortcomings, perhaps fend off or manage patient dissatisfaction. If you have a patient advocacy mindset going into a job like this, it can be really disheartening to discover the limits of what you can achieve. Yeah, so it makes sense that people in those roles often find the interpersonal interactions so rewarding. It's almost therapeutic. Which makes sense. I mean, there's maybe personal relating and connection, perhaps catharsis, gaining a new perspective. It's the affective aspect we've talked about before. Engagement can actually be experienced as something quite meaningful for the people involved. And the organization also gains because these activities, well, they potentially diffuse antagonistic or oppositional energies. Yeah, well, well, that might be true. It's interesting to note yet again, that large organizations with complex bureaucracies like hospitals, universities, research institutes, they don't exactly make it easy for people to do the work they've been hired to do. A lot of these themes just keep coming back. Okay, let's end there for now. Big thanks to Mark Weir for his participation in this episode. This episode was written and produced by Jennifer Johannesson and Emily Nicholas Angle, with additional music and production support from Angus Turney. Generous financial contribution was provided by the Ontario Spore Support Unit, or OSU, which is jointly funded by the Government of Ontario and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, or CIHR. The views and opinions expressed in this episode belong solely to the hosts or their guests and are not to be considered endorsed by OSU, the Government of Ontario, or CIHR.